This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Is Pete Carroll capable of pushing Seattle back to the top? Mm. We know he's keep, capable of keeping them good. And that's a huge, huge compliment in today's NFL. Can he push him back to the top? And the reason that's a question is because I feel that this team is a bit high-centered. That over the past, it's really six seasons, but really, the, especially the past five, they've been good enough to get into the playoffs. They've been good enough to even win a playoff game. Couple at home, one on the road. They haven't been capable of really being that different level of contender. They've settled into a plateau. And a few years ago, I would have said, okay, you have to understand that part of that was done as they were rebuilding and reloading after the defense lost lost Richard Sherman, Cliff Averill, Earl Thomas, all of those other guys. And a couple of years later, they're still young and they're still getting They're still there. They're still right there. Is Pete Carroll capable of getting this team back to the mountaintop? He's capable of keeping them within striking distance of it. Yes, they're in striking distance, right? Like, they're in the group of eight or ten teams, but they're not in the group of three or four. And I don't know that he's some singularity as a head coach on the field, a massive difference maker in games. I feel I like... I agree with you. Games, game strategy is probably not the thing I think he does best. And there's always going to be an element of him being thought of more as the culture guy as opposed to yep. the strategy guy. And culture hasn't been the problem the last two years. You could argue that execution and crispness has not necessarily been there, and I just based that off of the delay of games that make me want to throw a TV remote through a wall. So I think he's capable, but I I, I don't think he's any more capable than the other coaches, and I think we could have said that about him a couple of years ago, that Pete Carroll versus insert Coach X, you're going to take Pete over probably 95% of the coaches in the league. Where now, I don't think you can say that he is someone that you're going to pick over just about every single other option. I think he's the best bet for keeping your franchise relevant, keeping it competitive. I don't know if he's the best bet right now for getting your team over the hump. And maybe that's a middling difference and it doesn't really matter, but I think there is something about that idea and it gets into shelf life and what you're capable of building. Marty Schottenheimer, for decades, had the reputation of, if you need a guy that'll get you 9-7, and 10-6, and 11-5, and five, he's your man. He's not the best guy for playoffs. And some of that had to do with his strategy and, and, and playing things closer to the vest, although, but that, that's how his coaching career played out. Now, Pete Carroll is pretty much, he's a very different coach than Marty Schottenheimer. And as much as people would sort of point to the similarities in wanting to run the ball, he's a different coach. Pete is an, he likes an aggressive passing game, hucking it down the field. And he's certainly got, he knows what culture works for his teams. But I do find myself sitting there wondering, all right, how do you, how do you get back how do you get back to being one of the heavyweights, one of the bullies around the league? And can you do it with a coach who is as established and entrenched as Pete is? Because you don't have that sort of buzz of uncertainty. And maybe there's, it's not even complacency in his approach. It's complacency with guys under him. Do, do coaches have a shelf life in the NFL? I, I tend to think that maybe they do. Yeah, it's certainly possible. 
I mean, you can't all coach for 20-plus years with one team. And you might find out if you do 20-plus years with one team if a player who's been there that exact same time leaves, like you saw with Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and New England, that all of a sudden it's not quite as easy. It's not quite as automatic. So I do believe that there's a shelf life with all coaches in all sports. I would say in this situation right now, the difference that you're looking for, Danny, they have to figure it out. They have to start doing something that makes teams react, I think. When you say they, do you mean the players or do you mean the coaches? The coaches, right? I mean, the his cover three simple defense with that Legion of Boom made a bunch of teams try to copy it, essentially, after the fact. Everyone was trying to make their own version of it. And they've been running some variant of it ever since then. But it, this isn't something that is so difficult to beat anymore. And maybe that's because the players aren't the same. I would argue that's probably the strongest reason for that. But what else is it that they are doing that is making other teams across the NFL either react or try to copy, imitate them. And right now, they are trying to imitate what you're seeing with some of the offenses in the division in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. That's why they brought in Shane Waldron. That part. See, I agree with that on offense. I I like their defense. I don't have any issues with the defense that they run. I, I don't have and anybody who's looking for them to scheme it up or those sort of things. Look, I think Pete's approach, Pete knows, more, Pete knows that defense inside and out, and it frees up the whole idea is to free up defenders to make plays. Let them play. If I had one opinion or one complaint, play more young guys. L- let them go out there and cost them have it. Play more young guys. I don't have a problem with this scheme necessarily. What I'm just saying is that Pete Carroll doesn't do necessarily anything differently as a X's and O's guy than any other team across the league. And that's not necessarily the end of the world. It's just something that is kind of a strike against him when we're talking about the strategy guy versus the culture guy. I like that. I like the fact that he knows that defense inside and out. And the reason I like it is because he knows whatever an opponent will do to attack it. He knows however you're going to. And for all that we talk about... You can only fool people for so long with the defense in the NFL. And when you have a really complicated defense that runs the risk, you're going to confuse your guys. I like the fact that he knows that defense. It's his defense. And he's able to react to whatever opponents are going to try to do. Because to exploit one thing, you're leaving yourself vulnerable in another way. He knows how to fix his defense based on how teams attack him. Is the personnel, though, good enough on that defense to... I would say fix whatever attack might come against them. And it's it's not the dominant defense they had and it probably won't ever be again and that's probably why I start to look over to the offense. If you get an average off if you get an average defense you should be able to win when you've got one of the best quarterbacks in the league, right? You get you get an average defense you should be able to win if you have one of the best quarterbacks in the league, but that requires having having a little bit of an edge on 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 their offense. And I, I do think that bringing in Waldron was a good idea for it. I do too. In the regular season, yeah, you should be able to win with Russell Wilson and a average defense. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the same in the playoffs. Easy to point the finger at the offense for the struggles down the second half of the season because it was every single game. But the defense did have some issues in that game against L.A. I mean, they were going up against Jared Goff and, and, and John Wofford. 
they lost that game because of the offense. They did, though, right? but the defense they lost was that a game because of the they, they they lost that game because of the offense. True, but I mean, you know, for for all of the hullabaloo about uh, the season-ending injury to Cam Akers, which was horrible, like I don't I don't find him special as a running back. I I feel like he's he's above average to good. I looked at that team that should have been I would imagine much more one-dimensional and easier to stop in that game given the limitations that they had at quarterback and yet there was Cam Akers running all over them so that that is something that I would look at but and say that it was a that factor di- they lost that game not, dis- not disagreeing I'm just saying the defense was more of a factor than people are making it out to be in that game when I look at Pete and that question of how does he get the team back to the top what I think of is in 2013 they had this no excuses, provide no no reason for doubt. There was a mission that that group of players was on, and I'm wondering if it has to be the group of players who have that mission and not necessarily the coaches. I don't think Pete coaches differently than he did. I don't think he has more urgency then compared to now or anything like that, but I haven't seen that same level, that, that same edge from this team, and I wonder if it's some of the guys in the locker huh. room being used to and accustomed to Pete. It's not a criticism of Pete, but it's wondering if after a certain amount of time, can you get that team to play with that edge again? Maybe that made them more willing to give up two first-round picks for Jamal Adams because that's a guy that you watch on the field always seems to have one. It's why I think DJ Reed has been a success story to this point. Those are two guys that I feel like you watch them play and they play with just a different attitude about them. But that's not reflective of the entire defense. I don't think that is just about everybody out there. I, I is he I, signed yet? Jamal is he signed? Yeah. Is that is that all taken care of? Or are we just hoping? Are we just sitting on we're our waiting. hands and hoping? We're hoping that's going to be fine. Because I agree with you. I think they did go out and get him to get that edge. Is he, is he signed yet? He is, is anybody... out there, and he is and he is uh, being quite the cheerleader. So it is not as if he is angry or annoyed or anything like that. So I, I at feel least like he's close. positive. Yes. At, at least he's happy with yeah. you. It's Danny and Gallant today. We've got a lot coming up. The Seahawks training camp continues, and the Mariners had a really big win last, last night. It's time for Front Page News. This, this is the Front Page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710, get what you need to know to start your day right now. There's lots of good in last night's Mariners bounce-back victory over the Tampa Bay Rays. They're now 5-0 and against Tampa Bay on the season. A five-run third inning, which saw all nine get to the plate. Ty France, three for five. He crushed a home run, hit a double two. J.P. Crawford, Mitch Hanniger, two hits apiece. Jake Fraley back in the lineup. Web Gem, two hits himself. Even Jared Kelnick had a hit. They also had an outfield featuring all outfielders. That was cool. Chris Flexen, a career-high 113 pitches. It's the most thrown by a Mariner pitcher since Marco Gonzalez in 2019. You got decent work out of your bullpen. Six for 14 with runners in scoring position. A lot of good, Danny. Are you watching a Mariners team once again pull itself up off the mat? Remember what? They got swept at home by Detroit. They scored like three runs in three games and got no hit by that guy that we talked oh, about. God. Oh, you know, he has to. You remember when I tipped my cap to him? Has yeah. anybody ever heard from him? I can't him believe you tipped your cap to him. Yeah, I did tip my cap to him. Why? <laughs> Are they pulling themselves off the mat again? Because then they went and got clobbered by San Diego, came back home, and all of a sudden dug their heels in and made a stand. Are, are they doing it again? They lose two or three in Texas. They'd lost four or five after the trade of Kendall Graveman. They're in Tampa. They got Kikuchi on the mound tonight. Are they Are they about to make another, an, another grand rebound? Do it again tonight, and I'll be willing to say yes. This is a nice step in the right direction, though, and hopefully this is them stopping the playing of the small little violin, throwing it in the trash, smashing it, and moving on. 
because you got to move on. The trade happened. Now you're getting some reinforcements back. We're banged up, and we'll see if Jake Fraley can continue to just surprise the heck out of me with all he has done this year. The front page. All right, health and fitness section. You open it up. Matthew Stafford, he's got a bad thumb. Banged his thumb on a helmet. I can't decide whether I think that this is a freakish injury or one that should happen more frequently. Like, it seems like the way you throw a football where you sort of turn your thumb over, it's in prime, when you've got guys around you, it seems like this would be a relatively common occurrence. And when it happens, it can be really bad for quarterbacks. Yeah. And there's no indication how severe it is, but Matthew Stafford left practice yesterday after banging his thumb. Following through with a bunch of dudes who are six foot three plus running at you. Trying to kill you. Yeah. Now, should guys be trying to kill Matt Stafford on this Rams defense? No. They should be staying the heck away from him. This is a guy who's had multiple back injuries the last couple of years. Fair so point. what are the Rams doing? Hey, this might be, maybe, just maybe, where they miss Brandon Staley. Where you don't have somebody in charge of everybody that's calming them down. You might just have a bunch of bloodthirsty savages out there that are excited that, and I don't know if yesterday was the first day of full pads for the Rams. I know the NFL wide were allowed to wear full pads. It'll be the first day in full pads for the Seahawks today, but yeah, calm down, Rams. We also got Marquise Blair back on the field after having his heel stepped on. That's a mm-hmm. positive sign. Jamarco Jones sounded like he got rolled up on. Somebody rolled into him from behind. No indication. He walked off, but we don't know how severe that may or may not be. And Gabe Jackson wasn't on the practice field, but it's just a day off. The big man needed a day off his feet. Bobby Wagner also had the day off for a personal matter. So uh, there you go. Look, I I think thus far things are... Hope you hear me knocking on wood. uh, Relatively stress-free. To this point, I don't believe in jinxes, but I'm doing it anyway, just for you, and DJ. I don't, and I don't think that's wood. Well, there's probably some wood in it. So there you go. <laughs> My father, the logger, just rolled over in his grave. Yeah? Yeah, because you were knocking on particle board and calling it wood. There's got to be some wood in it. I mean, right? It's At Danny some point? And, it's Danny and Gallant. It's time for the morning drive with John Clayton. Imitation wood. John Clayton's morning drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's morning drive with Danny and Gallant. Speaking of wood, Professor Nick Chubb lays the wood of the fourth quarter unlike any running back out there. Ten yards averaging per carry in the fourth quarter and he gets an extension yesterday and I can't help but look at that contract that he got professor and look at what the Seahawks were able to give Chris Carson what a bargain that was for Seattle oh no question about it it's been really tough for running backs now again uh Chubb becomes like the sixth running back in the NFL to get over 10 million dollars a year but think about that that's only six and that includes Alvin Kamara. That includes Christian McCaffrey and all those different guys. But uh, there's only six. And so, I mean, Aaron Jones was able to get $10 million. But it's it's really tough for running backs to get money. And, of course, it's really tough for running backs to get money in free agency. Go back to last year in free agency, the biggest deal signed by a running back was Melvin Gordon going to Denver two years, 16 million bucks. That's 18 million a year. Now, again, we're not talking re-signs. We're talking free agency. This year, the biggest deal, if you can't believe this, 
was going to be Kenyon Drake going to the Raiders at two years, $5.5 million. Now, again, you know the cap went down 8% to 182.5, and so running back just pay a big price in this market. Is that just the relative value of the position, or is it a fear of injury? No, it's. I think it's the relative value of the position because again, it's like it's not one. It's not considered to be as valuable as running backs are, the high five pay, highest paid pay, uh, positions as far as pay. You know, because again, you know, you have lots of running backs. I mean, you can go one, two, three running backs. You can go to a committee. You can do this. You can do that. And of course, you know, most of the running backs, as you can see, even when when you look at the six running backs, you know, most of them are still like 25, 26 years old or younger. And you know, once you get to 27, 28, you start to think, well, we got to get rid of this running back. So no, I think it's a very tough position to be a running back in this league. It's kind of like catchers in baseball. Catchers in baseball tend to take a, a big abuse. Obviously, they take a big abuse behind the plate, but they also take a big abuse as far as you know trying to get money and trying to get status. You see the guy in the Mariners? Uh, check that. Uh, Abraham Toro had a foul ball go off of his foot last night, and it ended up hitting uh, the catcher mm-hmm. for the Tampa Bay Rays in this spot where you don't want to get hit. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure he had the protection there, John. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move on to my guy. I love him because he is always on brand. The one, the only Joe Judge, who made his whole defense and coaches run laps yesterday for messing up. A sub on a field goal block. I love this guy. You do? Yeah. I don't. I get a kick out of him just being on brand. I don't think it's necessarily going to work out. But John, he just makes me laugh every single time. He's on brand always with these laps that he makes everybody does. Yeah, I, I just think it's too much. I know that uh, you know Todd uh, Poles when he was with the New York Jets. If you got into any kind of a fight. I mean, he was going to, uh, you know, make you run laps, but that was going to be it. But if like you get a misplay or something like that, I mean, that's a typical Bill Belichick type of thing. And it's like I think it's just way too much. And so you kind of wonder, it's like, okay, is he too too overzealous as a coach? And you know, making and so it's like uh, you wonder if this is really going to work out with Joe Judge, you know, a special teams coach who became a head coach, as far as him being a good coach for the New York Giants. Hey, by the way, going back to the uh, Matthew Stafford thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I don't know if there was a. Uh, uh, it, it probably wasn't a padded practice, but I can't say that for sure. But I can tell you, it's like this wasn't on the defensive players. It wasn't on anything else. This is on Matthew Stafford. Mm. I mean, because I mean, I I think he's done this with the thumb injury three times in the last four years, if not more. I mean, I remember covering the last uh, Seahawks game when they played in Detroit, and he hit his thumb on a helmet. Uh, and you know, it, it, it affected him for a couple of weeks. So it's like uh, this is—he does this a lot. Hmm. And so it's like, is that on the defensive players? Because again, it was probably not padded practice, and so he's not going to get any any pressure. But again, I mean, there's going to be yeah. guys that are going to be there close to him with their helmets. But I mean, he he does this just about every year. Yeah, he actually had a partially torn UCL. You're right, John, in his right thumb mm-hmm. last year, right. just last year. Had wow. sur- and he, in fact, he had surgery during the off season. That's got to be a big concern for the Rams. Matthew Stafford, they have an awful lot invested in him, and not to say we don't know how serious this is. What are the initial indications you've heard around the league from how people feel about the Rams' chances this year? I I, I mean, probably they're overzealous in thinking how Mm -hmm. good they're going to be. I mean, they're going to be good. They're a playoff-caliber team. But again, when you lose because of the deal for Stafford, four defensive players, you know, Gerald Everett, 
Todd, uh, you, you lose a wide receiver in Josh Reynolds. You lose your starting center. Your running back, Cam Akers, goes and blows out his Achilles tendon. How can they be the same team? They're yeah. going to be a, little, be, be a little bit less. And all they were able to add was draft choices in Deshaun Jackson. And if you look at that secondary, I mean, say what you want. I mean, they're talented, but they're all undrafted guys for the most part. You know, guy. I mean, you know, like uh, there you know, two undrafted safeties. The linebackers are fifth round picks and uh, younger. I mean, it's like a, it's a it's a it's a struggle. I think. Professor, I was really intrigued hearing Nick Foles at his press conference yesterday saying that he wants to be traded to a team that he wants to be traded to, and also saying that he's playing really at his best right now. Here he is. There was a couple opportunities that um, came to be this off season with a couple teams, but it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right time or the situation with what was going on um, in my life. It's like I said, you want to—you don't just want to go somewhere to go somewhere. Like you want to go somewhere where you know the people somewhat, or you know someone who knows the people that can vouch for the people, so you can succeed. Listen, I'm 32. I feel great. The version of me right now is much better than the version that played in the Super Bowl. I'll tell you that, and I'm confident in that. So put that through your mind. I know that. I know what this game's about. You have to have the whole package as a team. Like, you have to have everyone in there. You have top-down has to be great. If it's not great, you're going to be mediocre. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. And unfortunately, when you're a quarterback, you got to go through a lot of the, you know, baloney. So he's clearly pumped up there. Do you think he's going to end up on Indianapolis before the start of the year? I don't know, because right now they're making no contact for him. And I think there's a fear about that $4 million guaranteed in his base salary. I mean, he was, you know, remember he signed a deal that was going to be three years, $24 million. And it's like, say what you want. Now, remember, that year where he filled in for uh, Carson Wentz, some of the regular season games were not good. He did not play well. And, you know, he certainly did great in the Super Bowl. And he's talking up a great game. But he couldn't beat out Mitch Trubisky at quarterback. If you can't beat out Mitch Trubisky at quarterback, how good are you at this stage of your career? And think think about this. It's not like he's doing so well that he's the backup quarterback. No, he's the third-string quarterback. I mean, you've got Andy Dalton as QB number one. You know, they've got Justin Fields as QB number two, and he's number three. And, you know, uh, they, they, there was a talk, and he's talked about teams wanting to trade for him. You know, they, they all were working on a deal for Philadelphia. He says, I don't want to go to Philadelphia back. I, it's like, I don't, I don't want to go there again. So it's like, sounds to me like all talk. Yeah, it does. It, it comes down to if you're a quarterback, do you want to play or not? Yeah. And if if you don't want to play and just cash your checks, that's 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 within your prerogative, I guess. And to say it'd be difficult about being traded, but if you it, that means you kind of don't want to play. It's the Charlie Whitehurst approach. Well, I think he wants to play. The problem is, I mean, is he going to get a chance to play? I mean, you have to be able to play well enough to be able to play. Now, obviously, in Indianapolis, <laughs> I mean, they say five to twelve weeks. I can't envision. Carson Wentz being available in five weeks. And then the other story that's starting to develop out of Indianapolis, which of course affects Seattle in the opener, is that Eric Fisher may have to miss the first month of a season coming mm. off his Achilles injury. Yeah, that, that, that part is very, very tough. John, we always love your updates, and we'll look forward to catching up Thanks, with you John. tomorrow. I'm going to go fix my thumb. <laughs> All right, the Professor John Clayton maybe gives some, Matthew Stafford some clues on digital uh, manipulation. We can also follow his uh, his work at 710sports.com. Not Matthew Stafford, the professor, that is. The Mariners are at their best against good teams. Does that matter? It should. We'll explain next. 
You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. From the stretch, just 3-1. Swung on and blasted to left field. This is crushed. How far is this going to go? Way back near the aisle way in left center field. Ty France just destroyed a ball. Demolished it. A solo home run, his 11th, his third hit of the ball game, and the Mariners add to the lead. 7-2 as Ty France goes yard in a big, big way. Oui, oui, monsieur. He crushed that one. Had a double in the game, too. Three for five on the game. Ty France looking really good for the Mariners last night who took down the Tampa Bay Rays 8-2. and two. Danny, they're pretty good against good teams this season, at least relative to expectations and given their talent level. I did some math with a calculator app on my phone last night. Seattle's a combined 30 and 28 against teams who, at least as of today, have a plus 500 record, which includes Houston, Oakland, Boston, Tampa Bay, Toronto, the Chicago White Sox, the Yankees, Cleveland, the Giants, Dodgers, and Padres. Probably less talented than all those teams above, and yet they continue to win, and they are 5-0 and against Tampa Bay on the year. It's a great sign, right? Like you, like, you like hearing that. The worst thing you have is that the team that is able to beat up on the Palookas, like the little the, the stumble bums of the league, and then when they go up against somebody real, they fold. The Mariners don't appear to be that and have not been that. They've been able to compete with good teams. We saw that in the Oakland series. Like, honestly, we've, we've seen that at different spots. They the first two games set they had with the Dodgers, when the Dodgers were absolutely humming, they split those two games. So, yeah, they've won five in a row. They're 5-0 and against the, the Tampa Bay Rays this year, and the Rays are one of the better teams. So that's it's not a bad sign. I'm not sure how much it tells us, though, right? Yeah, I thought that, it, honestly, the record was going to be a little bit better, and I guess I've been relatively indifferent to the idea of the Mariners in most series against the elite teams of baseball, but against good teams. I, I thought that, given the amount of series that they have won, that their record actually would be better in this spot. And, you know, it's about, I think, Right where we would put them in baseball, thirty and twenty-eight. They've been surprisingly good, but you're not really you're not really telling yourself anything more about this team. They are who they are. If they were twelve games above five hundred against losing teams, though, and then two games below five hundred against winning teams, if if that's if that's the way, if you if you had some sort of disparity like that, they win slightly more often against bad teams than they do against good teams. They, they they have winning records against both. I, I think these are positive things. I, I believe the biggest difference in baseball is between regular season baseball and playoff baseball. I, I think I think there's a real difference there. And I think that has to do with the quality of starting pitching and that when you have the better starting pitching, you have such an advantage in a playoff yes. series. I'm not sure if over the course of a regular season, though, that a difference between good and bad teams is meaningful. Interesting. You know, I, I would think it would to some extent. I mean, a bad team, I'm guessing, doesn't have the ability to score, although you could argue that with Seattle. A bad team is probably not going to have many starting pitchers, especially at this point in the year, because this is typically when they get sold off to one of the contending teams. I I, I would think that there that tells you a little bit of something, like, hey, at the very least, they're in a separate class from these second-class citizens of baseball. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. 
I, I agree with that. That they're not a team that's they're able to compete. I think a large part of that has to do with their bullpen. That the bullpen's been really good, and that'll keep you in an awful lot of games. If you were saying one one reason why I think they do that, the second reason I would say is that they don't give away at bats. That their guys and they strike out a ton, and that that is part of not giving away at bats because they get up there and they're going to take their hacks. But because they do that, they do end up getting into opponents' bullpens, right? Yeah, like they drive up. We've we've seen that happen a lot. So if you're two reasons why this team, it's certainly not that they bludgeon people into oblivion because it's not a very good hitting team. In fact, it's a poor hitting team. Overall, it's a poor hitting team. It's a great sign that they don't fold against against better opponents, though. And hopefully they keep this up against Tampa Bay. I feel like, Danny, for them to have any chance of, of getting into that playoff realm and back to you know being a possible wildcard team is they're going to need more of what you just heard from Ty France. There's going to have to be some real individual excellence and I'm curious as to how many of these guys are actually capable of it. We, I mean, we saw it with J.P. Crawford. We saw it with Mitch Hanniger. Maybe we could see it with Ty France. Maybe we could see it with Abraham Toro. But I, I think that might be what separates them from a lot of those other teams is that there aren't many players that you would look at and expect them to have the kind of month or weeks where they're just on an absolute tear, crushing everything to the same degree at least as those teams who've got guys like Fernando Tatis Jr. and and uh, Mookie Betts. What about Kelnick? Do you feel like that's going to change by the end of the year? Yes, you do. I think he I think he's going to get on a tear. And I don't think it'll, it'll it'll make up for or change or I'll sit there and say but yes, I think he's going to get on a tear. I mean, if he gets on a tear then I feel like they actually could make the playoffs. I just don't think that this year it's going to happen. Now, the good news is he's he's starting to be not just a complete anchor for this lineup. He got a hit last night, too, so he's he hasn't been following 0 for 4 with 0 for 4 with 0 for 4 in the same way that he was his first time up. And honestly, what you could have seen from him just a couple of weeks ago, too. He had a great game on Friday, right? Mm-hmm. Hit the hit the homer. That was his it, a, a sort of breakout performance. Then, then he had, did he have an, a go hitless on Saturday and then have a hit Sunday? Hit and, and two then- walks on Sunday. So we're looking for little flashes, right? Like saying, like, okay, he's, I think he's going to get on a tear, man. I think he's I think he's too good a hitter, and I think that once he figures this out, and I think specifically he's having an impossible time with breaking balls. I think he's really – and I think once he figures it out, I think we're going to see a month. And he may still not end up batting above 200 for the year. That may not be enough to get him out of the hole he's in, but I think we're going to see him go on a tear. And I'll say this, it's such a little thing, but Joe Doyle um, pointed out on Twitter last night, he says, obviously a very small sample size, but since reverting back to his old batting stance where he's not really hunched over anymore, he's standing up more, which Kelnick said last week he's able to see those low pitches a lot better. So since he did that since last Wednesday, he is slashing 261 with an on-base percentage of 333 ah. with a 391 slugging percentage with a 14.8% walk rate and now only an 18.5% strikeout rate, which is still high, but compared to where it was, where it was like in the high 30s, right? it's a lot better. Right, where he's like slamming his baseball bat down on the ground after every single one of those at-bats. He did make a point in talking about that over the weekend that he thought the change in stance the change in stance was going to allow him to see breaking balls better. That there was that there was a mechanical reason why why he was swinging over the top of breaking pitches. Yeah, and look, if 
if this is something that he has seen and can correct this quickly, that's a great sign. I, I'm, I don't know about the hot streak, though. Though I, I hope it happens. Danny and Gallant, he's Danny O'Neill. I'm Paul Gallant, 710 ESPN Seattle. What's the most encouraging thing about the Seahawks' new offense from what we've seen at training camp thus far? We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness here at 710 ESPN Seattle. We've had about six months now to get ramped up for the Shane Waldron era, right? New offensive coordinator, somebody we've heard a lot about all the different things that he's going to bring in here. What's the thing you're most excited about? What's the thing that you've heard or seen that gets you the most pumped about what what this could be? Because look, you're going to hear a lot of superlatives. It's kind of how it works. Maybe maybe we'll get it started with with Pete Carroll talking about how seamless how seamless things have been. What's Shane Waldron's transition from the Rams to the Seahawks been like, Pete? He has just kind of seamlessly just taken over. Um... He's pictured himself in this role. He's 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 assumed the position just just very comfortably. Uh, he's really good in front of the team. He, he, the one of the real assets that Shane has is his his understanding of what goes on across the board. He's, he he knows the, the running game up front. He knows pass protection up front from a, a lineman's perspective. Uh, coached tight ends for a long time. He really has all of that where he can communicate that. He doesn't have to turn it over to Mike. You know he can he can fill in and, and make sure that he's uh, he, he's expressing that emphasis that we need on stuff and. Uh, that's a that's a big asset, you know. He has a really well well versed background, and uh, you can you can tell. That's important to have. It gives you perspective on every single part of the offense. Again, remains to be seen how that translates to the regular season. But it is hype season. It is trope season, and these are the kind of quotes that you're going to get, especially from Mister Fatally Optimistic himself, One Pete Carroll. I, I guess to this point, Danny, based off of what I've seen. They want to increase the tempo and the rhythm, but when I've been out there, I, I haven't necessarily seen fast pace and tempo quite yet. Oh, man, that's what I was going to say. That was the thing that I was most excited about. Well, I, I don't know that they necessarily can do it to this point. What I do like, though, is the process of the new installation of their offense. Obviously, it's going to take some time. I like seeing those speed sweeps. They're disorienting. Those jet sweep motions that they have. I mean, there are a couple of plays where they weren't even handing the ball off, and it, I think, would provide one, two seconds of hesitation, perhaps for linebackers, and that could be just enough for Russell Wilson to do something really quickly. And, and that's that's the thing I noticed the most. Now, I don't know if it's a concerted effort by Russ or by the Seahawks offense, Danny, but when I was out there, they are seemingly going out of their way to throw short passes, whether it's to tight ends, throws in the flat, throws that are slants, quick seams up the middle. And there were moments where Russ probably could have gone elsewhere, and maybe this is something that they're just telling him, hey, look, we know that there's going to be some deep stuff available, but there were a couple times where I saw DK Metcalf lined up against DJ Reed, and... I think in a game, if Russ sees that kind of matchup where DK's lined up against someone who is six inches, five inches shorter than him, I feel like he's going to challenge that corner. And I almost noticed DK being a little bit annoyed that he wasn't getting the ball thrown his way in in that spot because it felt 
like Russ was really focusing on just making sure those passes get out quickly in the short and intermediate, which was something he struggled at last year. Is that what you're excited for? Yeah. This is going to have more short game? Yeah, I, I, I felt like that was a big issue for him down the stretch last season, that he, he couldn't see it for whatever reason. And I think the only way that you get better at that is by prioritizing it and focusing on it in practice and getting used to having quick looks and quick throws and just getting the ball out as, as rapidly as possible. And that's that's the thing that I came away from yesterday most excited about with this offense. I find myself torn because I do want them to find more consistent short game and not everything to be a, a wing and a prayer. I don't want them to lose the killer instinct they have in throwing deep. And I don't think we ever have. It's the thing Russell Wilson does the best. Yeah, I want to see them accelerate the pace. I cannot count the number of times that I've seen that offense for a quarter and a half to start a game be absolutely ineffective. And then all of a sudden they step on the gas and I'll look at it, and that's when I say like they start running the good offense. <laughs> I think Russell plays best when the pace is accelerated. And I know that Pete doesn't like that because he prefers – his formula would be let's get the game to the fourth quarter, especially when they're on the road. I, I think that they function best, that their offense functions best when, when the pace is accelerated. And it's not even a hurry up. You don't have to run, but don't don't drain the play clock every time. Don't sit there and wait. Like be more decisive. Let Russell, and if that means Russ has a has a has a larger role in calling the plays, the one thing I want from this offense is for it to more consistently shift into that higher tempo. I would like to see that too, but I understand why Pete doesn't do it because what happens when you go, when you go three and out? I mean, you're you're killing your your defense. I would say that rhythm. And an overemphasis on rhythm was the biggest problem for Chip Kelly's offense in Philadelphia. I mean, it made sense to kind of push the pace the way that they were doing it. But if you if Chip you, didn't have Russell Wilson, though. true, that's true, and that's Chip, a big Chip difference. Had, Chip had Nick Foles and and all the different guys that they were. Look, I get that that sort of thought that it taxes your defense and it potentially puts them in a bad spot. I'm not sure if there's anything that's going to put this defense in a good spot. Certainly wasn't the last the first half of last season. I think you accentuate your biggest strength. Your biggest strength is your quarterback. Give him the most bites of the apple. Give him the most opportunities. And don't play from the, hey, at least if we punt, we'll have taken two minutes off the clock. Right. Right? Like, let's go. That's your biggest strength. And when I generally think that when teams have an advantage at quarterback, you're best served. The more possessions possible, the better. I, I, I really believe that that's, that's the best way of approaching it. And I think, I think playing with tempo lends itself to that. Getting to the line of scrimmage as quickly as possible, moving. And then we avoid the delay of game penalty. That I would agree on. I mean, that, please. Then we avoid the, oh, they're walking up to the line with please. eight seconds left on the play oh, clock. I hope that's done. I really hope that's done forever. Isn't that always going to be a feature, though? Don't you, don't you feel like it's always going to happen from time to time? Maybe they can get rid of it entirely. Honestly, if they get rid of it entirely this year, I'll be pretty happy. <laughs> Even if the results I, maybe end up the same. I don't know entirely why it happens. Right? Pete's not calling the offense, but Pete's having input on the offense. So I don't know if it's Pete kind of slowing down and making sure they get to the play or his input on it that's slowing it down. But there's something that has slowed down. And it's been through, I think it's it's more than just Schottenheimer. Because sometimes it's the coordinator that just does it. I, I don't think that's, I don't know enough about the process of communication to say it. I used to think it was because Bevel and Cable you had one guy designing the calling the protection and the other guy calling the pass plays, and then Cable was also doing the run plays, and that wasn't wonky. 
I, I'm not sure what it is, but yeah, I, I'd like to see that go. And honestly, playing with tempo makes it makes it harder to get those sort of things. You don't have the situations where you're up against the play clock. So there's one thing I'd like to see from from that offense. It is increased tempo. We'll ask Brock about that. And also, Chris Carson's deal looking better than ever given the extension that Nick Chubb just signed. That's all ahead here on Danny and Gallant.